Chapter 13 of The Falcon on the Baltic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13 The Kattegat and Isa Fjord. At three o'clock the next morning, I was awakened by that deafening jumble of noises which is produced when a small vessel is tumbling about at anchor in a seaway. The groaning of timber, the rattling of the contents of lockers, the clashing together of the various articles hanging from the forecastle roof, the creaking of the main boom, the straining of the chains, and manifold other scrapings and gruntings and thumpings which perplex the listener to account for. I got on deck and found that it was still dark, but that the first signs of daybreak were appearing in the east. It was not the sort of morning to cheer up a man who had just turned out of his comfortable bunk. The wind was gusty and bitterly cold, the sky was stormy-looking, and the bleak expanse of dark, rough sea before me had an uninviting aspect. So I felt that I should have been better pleased had I waked up and found myself in some snug harbor instead of at this exposed anchorage. The wind had not only veered to the northwest in the night, but had even gone a point or so to the northward of that, so that we were now on a lee shore. Under these circumstances, it would not do to remain where we were any longer. I roused the peacefully sleeping right, and we got under way at once. We had a long day before us, and I thought we should be able to reach Elsinore, which was sixty-five miles away, before night. We had first to sail in a northeasterly direction so as to weather the extremity of the promontory of Sielenzoda, after doubling which we would have a fair wind all the way to the sound. Sielenzoda is one of the worst dangers to navigation on this coast. It is a remarkably shaped neck of land, twelve miles long and generally under two miles in breadth, and from its point there extends for another sixteen miles out to sea, a narrow strip of rocky reefs, dry in patches, but for the most part covered with water, on which many an unfortunate vessel has been lost. There are several navigable passages across this reef. One, with five feet of water in it, is close under the cape. But the pilot book told me that there were no leading marks for it, and that the only directions that can be given will apply to the other channels, to wit, that the agitation of the water is less in them than on the reefs. Seeing that the weather was thick, that a nasty sea was running, and that I had no good chart of this portion of the coast, I prudently decided to avoid these somewhat dangerous shortcuts and sail through the broad ship channel between the Yider Reef and the Hastings Ground. We were thirteen miles from the entrance to this channel, and we could just fetch it close-hauled on the port tack. We were a long while getting there, and at times it seemed as if we should not be able to weather the wider reef, for a high, steep sea was running, and the falcon, as usual when turning to windward under such circumstances, jumped about a good deal, but made very little headway, and sagged to leeward in a disheartening fashion. At last we approached the reef, which certainly presented a terrible appearance. The seas were breaking on it with a great roar, and the shallow water beyond was whirling and foaming like the surface of a boiling cauldron. The rocks seemed to be all covered, except in one place where a small black patch was occasionally visible in the midst of the raging waters. On this dry patch stood a large beacon, or rather a refuge, called a ranan, 
a squat tower painted with red and white horizontal bands in which the pilot book informed me provisions are stored so that if a vessel be wrecked on the reef and the crew succeed in reaching this refuge they can support life until succor can be sent to them from the mainland two miles outside the ranan is the beacon which marks the extremity of the wider reef this we doubled at seven o'clock then slacking off our sheets we ran before the wind with far easier motion and much greater speed than before across the broad bay which extends from Cielanzoda to the entrance of the sound the northwest wind was kind to us this day it blew freshly and was anything but warm but it was not the blustering bully we had hitherto known this was well for us as the sea soon becomes dangerously rough on the open katagat and even now that only a steady breeze was blowing high wall-like masses of water rolled down upon us in so threatening a manner that we had to acknowledge that we would have preferred less to more wind at midday the sky suddenly cleared and the wind fell at one o'clock it was almost calm and our mainsail began to flap about despite wright's persistent whistling for a breeze so as elsinore was still many leagues away and there seemed to be but a small chance of reaching it before nightfall i altered my plans we were now in the middle of the bay and about five miles from the nearest land the high capes that bordered the entrance to isa ford to the north of us far away on the sea horizon rose a tower the lighthouse on the little island of heslow a remote spot which i understand is inhabited by one man and multitudes of seals and rabbits i decided to make for isa ford which abounds with harbors and safe anchorages so bearing away we steered towards spotsbeard point we did not reach it for three hours so light was the wind and we should not have got there then had not a squall opportunely come down on us while we were yet a mile away this inlet which is the most extensive fjord in sealand is well worthy of a visit at its entrance it is only two miles wide but within it expands into a great sheet of water upwards of ten miles in breadth having several long winding tributary fjords connecting with it amongst others rosakilda ford a beautiful gulf twenty miles in length at whose further end stands the very ancient royal city of the same name a whole summer's holiday might well be spent in cruising among the islands and inlets of isa fjord it ought indeed to be the paradise of small boat sailors yet i did not see a single pleasure craft upon its waters it is a great pity that this inland sea with its clear water wooded shores and all cannot be transported bodily to the mouth of the thames the cockneys would appreciate it and know how to use it and possibly misuse it too as i entered the fjord i perceived a group of red-roofed cottages on the east shore of the narrows and a small artificial harbor of rough stones inside which two or three fishing boats were lying my chart ignored the existence of the village or harbor but as this looked like a snug little place i sailed in and made fast to the quay the harbor was a queerly constructed one from the shore a rough jetty of timbers filled in with great stones extended across the shallows for about thirty yards and then divided into two branches which enclosed the tiny port leaving a very narrow passage to the sea a y with its two arms bent round until their ends nearly met would serve as a plan of this primitive harbor 
The village consisted of one store and about two score of fishermen's huts, not forming a street, but scattered over the shore as if they had been thrown there haphazard. On the beach a number of fishing boats were drawn up, and behind all rose breezy downs on which cattle and sheep were grazing. I went up to the store and there found several fishermen and pilots whom I saluted in English. They looked at me with some surprise, for, not having seen the yacht, they naturally wondered from whence I had turned up. But I very soon satisfied their curiosity, as not only the storekeeper but several of the other men spoke English well. An Englishman can never find any difficulty in making himself understood in the very smallest of Baltic fishing harbors. As usual, all these honest, hardy fellows were my friends at once, anxious to offer information and be of any possible service. The storekeeper was, again, as usual, a retired sea captain, who now supplied the fishermen with everything they could possibly require, from akavit to fishing nets. At his place they could purchase their simple provisions, stockfish, salt pork, onions, and coffee, their clothes and furniture, even their coffins. He was the universal provider of the place, the local Whitley. He offered to accompany me for a walk, and show me all that there was to be seen in Hundestead, as this out-of-the-way little settlement is called. First we crossed the downs, wondrously green and bright with a profusion of thyme and harebells, as are all the downs in this fresh, moist climate of Denmark, and on to the lighthouse on Spotsbjerg Head. Here I was surrounded by a vast panorama which included all the various features of Danish scenery. The waves were dashing on the base of the cliff on which we stood, and to the north stretched the boundless sea with nothing to break its sameness but the small island of Heslo. To the west, the rugged bays and capes of the coast of Sealand were visible as far as the entrance to the Great Belt. To the south lay the smooth blue waters of Isaford, with its many islets and beach-crowned hills. And to the east, the eye roamed over an immense tract of undulating country, having pastures and scattered villages, but consisting for the most part of wild and somber forest land, with here and there the gleaming waters of a lake or tarn. Beyond the hills that formed the limit of this region, the entrance to the sound was faintly visible, and the lofty black promontory of Cullen on the Swedish coast rose from the sea like an island. My friend the storekeeper was a very well-informed man, and was well up in the history of the neighborhood. I noticed the remains of old earthworks on the downs near the lighthouse. These, he told me, had been thrown up by the Danes when they were at war with the English in 1801. He was the chief man at Hundestead, and in addition to keeping the store, was a timber merchant and owner of many fishing boats. He had the interests of his native village very much at heart, and expressed great dissatisfaction at the way in which the little settlement had been treated by the government. It seems that the following system prevails on the Danish coasts. If a sufficiently large community of fishermen represent to the government that an harbor is necessary for their boats, an inspector is sent down to examine the proposed locality, and, if his report is satisfactory, the government advances the necessary funds for the construction of the work. The fishermen give their labor, and afterwards repay the loan with interest by the levy of a harbor due. The falcon was tacked sixpence for the use of this harbor. Now, the energetic storekeeper, who was harbor master as well as everything else in the place, 
had himself initiated the idea of Hundested Haven, and had drawn up a plan, which he showed me representing what he considered his pet project should be like. But the government sent down its own harbor constructor, an unpractical official who had theories of his own, and who, despite the protestations of the fishermen, set them at work to carry out his plans, which resulted in the eccentric Y-shaped haven I have described. As was foretold by the sailors themselves, this has proved to be almost useless, and is gradually becoming entirely so. Its mouth faces the sea instead of opening out on the southern side towards the fjord, as it should do. Hence it becomes impossible to get out when a strong wind is blowing from the Kattegat, as the waves would dash a vessel on the rocks before she could clear the entrance. Now, as it is only in rough weather that the fishermen can successfully carry on their occupation, they are liable to be detained in this unscientifically devised harbor at the very time when they ought to be at sea. And, more than this, a gale has on more than one occasion completely filled the harbor with sand and weeds, so that the whole of the population, including the women and children, have had to turn out and dig for days with great labor to free the imprisoned boats on which their daily bread depends. Again, even at its best, the harbor will not admit craft of more than four feet draft. Thus, in consequence of a government official's obstinacy, the unfortunate fishermen have saddled themselves with a heavy debt which they can never pay off, for now most of the skippers prefer remaining at anchor outside to entering such a rat trap of a port, and consequently but few dues are collected. I had noticed on entering the haven that the water, instead of being beautifully clear as it is elsewhere in the Baltic, was of a thick white color as if quantities of chalk had been stirred up with it. The squall that was blowing had, for the time, removed another unpleasant peculiarity of the haven, which, now that the wind had dropped, began to assert itself very strongly. This was a horrible stench, the like of which I have never experienced anywhere, though I have been in many malodorous ports. Yes, we shall have cholera or the plague here some day, I expect, said the storekeeper when I remarked on it. But it is nothing today. You should be here in really hot weather. Then the stink is intolerable and can be distinguished for a mile all around the harbor. Before that stupid harbor was built, we had none of this. Then Hundestad was becoming quite a little watering place. Copenhagen people used to come here on account of the good bathing and the pure air. Few come here now, but today there is not much smell. Hearing this, I tried to form an idea of what it would be like when there was much smell, but gave up the attempt in disgust. Exceedingly disagreeable as this odor is, I doubt whether it is prejudicial to health. It is put down to the masses of seaweed that accumulate between the jetties. The Baltic water, probably in consequence of the small percentage of salt contained in it, one-seventh that of the ocean, seems to promote a vegetable decomposition differing from that which occurs in other seas, and it is certainly more offensive to the senses. The exhalation of this white water produced a remarkable effect. In the course of a few hours, it turned all the gray paint inside our bulwarks and the white paint in our cabin dark brown. We found it not at all easy to wash off this stain, and, judging from its smell and color, I think that the rotten weeds of Hundestead throw off fumes of some sulfurous gas. It is quite possible that these stinking white waters, far from being unhealthy, 
possessed valuable remedial properties and that the much reviled government harbor designer has unconsciously proved a benefactor to the people of this hamlet who should forthwith sell their fishing boats roof over their haven advertise well and all make their fortunes as the proprietors of the all-curing hundested medicinal baths here too is a chance for some of our own company promoters the inhabitants themselves do not belie the advantages of the scheme by their appearance they are as robust healthy-looking clean-skinned a race as can be found in europe not only was my friend displeased with the government on account of the unsatisfactory haven but he sorely complained that hundestead unlike other settlements of its size did not possess a public school and that very few of the fishermen could read or write a rare exception to the rule among this well-educated people he said that in consequence of this ignorance the poor mariners when they entered a swedish port to sell their fish were unable to reckon up their accounts and were therefore woefully cheated by the swedes the swedes by the way are not much liked by the lower classes in denmark they are accused of being cunning and dishonest on the other hand the danes get along very well with the norwegians who speak their own language the storekeeper who was evidently very anxious to forward the prosperity of unhappy hundested told me that he intended to go to copenhagen himself in the autumn interview the minister of home affairs and lay before him the grievances of the little community hundested is one of the most important stations of the herring fishery on this coast i was told that two weeks later hundreds of boats would be lying off here and that a busy market would be held in the village attended by many wholesale fish dealers from copenhagen many of these fishing boats were drawn up on the shingle beach above the haven and were now being fitted out for the coming season each boat carries three hands who as a rule owner between them three brothers who owned one of the largest of the fleet a craft of whose good qualities they were very proud took me over her and explained to me all the details of the fishing as it is carried on in these seas like most of the other boats she had been built in sweden where labor and timber are much cheaper than in denmark she was not much bigger than the falcon was strongly built of oak sloop rigged sharp sterned like a whaleboat with a great shear a deep false keel and a stern and bow raking so much that her length on deck was nearly double that of the keel she had no bulwarks but there was a small cockpit aft for the man steering and another forward for the hand working on the net or lines not a luxurious berth this last on a wild winter's night when the craft is running her nose into the icy waves the rest of the vessel was occupied by the fish well and have you no cabin to sleep in i asked we have not was the reply of one of these hardy norsemen you see we are young men yet and can put up with the wet and cold we can't afford to hamper up the boat with cabins a few years since none of these boats were provided with cabins but most of the new ones have very confined sleeping quarters mere lockers opening into the cockpit when it is remembered that these fishermen remain at sea for many days even sailing as far as the island of anholt in midwinter it will be understood that the islanders of Sealand are by no means a degenerate race. These craft, small as they are, can put up with a great deal of rough weather, though they are occasionally turned over by the dangerous breaking seas of the Karagat. They can be readily beached, 
and indeed it often happens that when a fleet of them is overtaken by a sudden gale on an unprotected part of the coast they are run ashore and the ballast big stones from the beach is thrown overboard while the crews help each other to drag boat after boat out of the reach of the waves the solder having melted the framework of our riding light had tumbled to pieces so i inquired of the storekeeper if there was a blacksmith in the place who could put it to rights for me he said that there was no blacksmith but that he knew a man who might be able to do what i required he then introduced me to a strange being who was a veritable jack-of-all-trades and poor fellow certainly master of none this was the one pauper of hundestead the village idiot a harmless hideously deformed and crippled imbecile arrayed in the filthiest of rags his whole possession in the world beside his rags and it is doubtful whether he could show a title to that was a rough stone hut open to all the winds of heaven and destitute of furniture of any sort he lived on charity but would work when it pleased him if one supplied him with tools and materials he could sometimes condescend to mend a pair of boots undertake a bit of carpentering repair fishing nets and in short do any odd job after a somewhat clumsy fashion with some difficulty i persuaded him to try his hand at soldering and purchased for him in the store the articles he asked for a few lumps of coal some wood and a pennyworth of petroleum he said he would beg or steal the other requisites when he had completed his work he came into the store and to the amusement of the assembled sailors held tightly to the lamp with both hands and refused to even lay it down on the counter until he had received the stipulated payment the poor idiot evidently entertained a profound mistrust of foreigners which he did not attempt to conceal when i handed him the money he seemed greatly surprised and skipped about the floor with gestures and inarticulate cries of exceeding joy what's the matter with you asked the storekeeper the matter exclaimed the poor fellow with an air of dignified pride i know now that you foolish people are all wrong in calling me an idiot because this man is a stranger i have charged him three times too much and he paid it the englishman is more idiot than i am being taken in so easily me an idiot indeed why even our clever host here has only charged him the right price for the beer he is drinking oh you idiots you idiots and shrieking with delight he danced out of the store i believe that one could find a moral somewhere in this story i think that our dinners must have been somewhat indigestible for both wright and i dreamt terrible dreams this night i awakened several times with a start under the impression that i had fallen asleep at the tiller and had allowed the yacht to drive among the breakers on a shoal the sounds around us were well calculated to suggest such a nightmare for a fresh wind was blowing from the sea and only the narrow jetty was between us and the waves which dashed on the stones with a great roar and occasionally washed right over and dropped a few buckets full of water on our decks wright dreamt that he was in a house on fire or in the infernal regions or in some other burning place and no doubt this train of ideas could be put down to the heavy sulphurous fumes that had crept into our cabins from the water outside on the next morning august the fourth a light wind was blowing from the east and a pilot who had just come in told us that a strong northerly current was running out of the sound so that it was very doubtful whether we would be able to reach elsinore that day 
I was not at all loath to postpone my voyage so as to have a day's exploration of the fjord in the dinghy. But there was something else to be considered. I had received no letters from home since I had left Kiel, and I knew that important correspondence was awaiting me at Copenhagen, which I was anxious to get without delay. Then I examined the chart, and found that the town of Friedrichsund on Roskilde Fjord was connected with Copenhagen by a railway twenty miles in length. This decided me. I would combine business with pleasure, sail to Friedrichsund in the dinghy, and thence take train to the capital and fetch my letters. I had a voyage of sixteen miles before me. I started at seven o'clock, pulled up the coast, passed the little fishing haven of Linus lying at the foot of a steep cliff, and then, leaving the great Brednig, entered the narrow waters of Roskilde Fjord. This fjord was much like the others I had visited, now narrowing, now broadening, but always bordered by charmingly green hills. But this was the loneliest inlet I had yet seen on the coast. Very few habitations were visible on the shore, and I perceived no signs of agriculture. The water was, as a rule, very shallow, so that I had to follow the channel even with a dinghy, and it was overgrown with an extraordinary quantity of weed, which in places was beginning to assume rich autumnal tints. The whole of one small bay was of a deep crimson color from this cause, and the vivid green pasture behind it and the bright blue sky above formed a treble band of such dazzling hues as are only seen in the brief northern summer. After I had rowed eight miles in the hot sun, a northerly wind began to blow right down the fjord, and I was able to ship the oars and sail the rest of the way. At last I came to a point where the convergence of two promontories leaves but a very narrow passage for the waters of the fjord, and here there is a bridge of boats from one shore to the other. I passed under the bridge, and there before me on the left bank of the fjord, which had again suddenly expanded into Broad Lake, stood the little town of Friedrichsund. And now I had to discover where I could leave the dinghy while I went to Copenhagen, for even Danish boys cannot be trusted not to meddle with an unguarded boat. Danish boys, by the way, are infinitely less naughty than Dutch, but, being somewhat less overworked at school, are more mischievous than the German lads. As I approached the bank, I saw half a dozen urchins eyeing me with an interest that betokened danger. Then, to my great relief, I perceived that there was a vessel in the harbor, a good-sized schooner that lay along the quay, discharging coal. In her I recognized my natural protector. The skipper of a collier would be certain to speak English, I would enter into a defensive alliance with him, and all would be well. So I made fast to the quay and called on the captain, who did speak English, and had just arrived from Charleston in the Firth of Forth, having been eleven days on the voyage. He gladly consented to take charge of the dinghy during my absence, so I brought her round and secured her to the other side of his vessel, where the boys could not get at her without swimming, and he promised me that if they tried this, his crew would pelt them with the British coals he had on board. My mind being thus set at ease, I walked up the chief street, rather a smart one for a town of only 1,300 inhabitants, and lunched at a comfortable hostelry called the East Fjord Hotel. There is something very homely and pleasant about the Danish inns. They are like what tradition tells us the English inns were in the good old days, when there was plenty of solid comfort, when the guests were jovial beings who supped heartily and feared not dyspepsia. 
and the host was a host indeed and became one's friend before one had been half an hour under his roof but the danish inns have the further advantage of being scrupulously clean which i rather doubt anything was in the england of those same good old days the host here could not speak english but his father-in-law was even yet another of them an old sea captain who spoke our language well he was a jolly old gentleman who had been in the china trade he seemed very interested in our cruise so much so that he sent his little grandson to fetch the editor of the local paper who forthwith came with a notebook and pencil and proceeded to cross-examine me at length the captain acting as interpreter while he jotted down my history which he told me would appear as an article in the next day's edition as there was no train to copenhagen for some hours i crossed the pontoon bridge and visited Jagerspreis, the old royal palace and park which belonged to the crown of Denmark nearly six hundred years ago, and where many interesting statues and other curiosities are to be seen. But what pleased me most was the wood to the north of the park, which I had noticed while sailing down the fjord, whose waters it borders for some distance. The glades in this wood are singularly beautiful there are spots where one could imagine oneself to be in one of those primeval forests long since destroyed which once covered all these northern lands the oaks here are the largest in the country and the king's oak i quote from murray is the largest in all denmark it is now reduced to a hollow trunk with green branches issuing from the inside as well as from the outside its circumference is forty-two feet I then returned to the railway station of Fredriksund and took my place in a third-class compartment with a family of handsome peasants, who, to judge from their anxiety and utter helplessness, had never travelled by train before. They all began to address me together in eager voices. They were, no doubt, asking me whether they were in the right carriage, when they would reach their destination, and the many other questions with which the inexperienced are wont to worry their travelling companions and when I informed them in English that I was a foreigner and did not understand what they were talking about, they became suddenly silent and sat eyeing me with open-mouthed consternation as if I had been some strange and dangerous beast, and the little children, who displeased with their unfamiliar surroundings had been ready to weep on the slightest provocation, now broke out into a chorus of vigorous boo-hooing and would not be comforted. The whole party looked upon me with profound suspicion, and when one of the stalwart sons had filled his pipe and could find no match to light it with, he would not ask me for one, and when I handed him a box, he hesitated to take it until his little wife, relenting towards me, nudged him and whispered to him to remember his manners. This made matters worse, for the young man now seemed to wax jealous and frowned and glared savagely at me with his big blue eyes for the rest of the journey. It would be difficult to find anywhere in Europe a jollier lot of people to travel among than the seafaring population of Denmark. The honest, open-hearted, hospitable, and intelligent herring fishers of the coast villages. But from what I saw and heard of them, I doubt whether the peasant proprietors are quite so agreeable a race. In character, they much resemble the same class in some parts of Normandy. They have all the stolid and unornamental virtues. They are thrifty, they are very shrewd at a bargain, suspicious of foreigners. These small freeholders form the strongest party in the country and hold exceedingly democratic and radical opinions, 
an anomaly for a class which represents the landed interests, whereas the townspeople and fishing population are, for the most part, what we should call conservatives. The farmers are all for the doing away of the army, navy, and even the crown, so that their taxation may be lightened. There may be reason in some of their complaints against the present system of things, but their policy seems to be cut down the taxation which affects us at whatever cost to the rest of the community. They are apparently blind to all other considerations but the saving of a penny here or a penny there, and I understand that but too many of these selfish and short-sighted boors would welcome anarchy or socialism if they could thereby be relieved of some petty rate. But it is not only in Denmark that men grudge the pennyworth of tar necessary to keep the ship of state sweet and taut. At last I was landed in Copenhagen, and on leaving the station found myself among broad, bright boulevards, so that I could have imagined myself in Paris were it not for a glimpse of the port with its forests of masts. But Copenhagen, notwithstanding its animated aspect, imposing squares, and fine streets, is, as I very soon discovered, not a small Paris by any means, very happily for itself, no doubt. For its size, it is, I imagine, the soberest, quietest, most early go-to-bed, in short, the most respectable city in Europe. The casual stranger would call it distinctly dull. I found that the consulate was closed, so I could not get my letters until the next morning, and I had to find a lodging for the night. I avoided the swell hotels, among other reasons because I had no luggage with me, and wandered about in search of a more modest establishment. I soon came upon what I required in the Amalia Gada, close to the custom house, a little inn frequented by skippers and kept by, I need scarcely say it, one of the great legion of English-speaking ex-sea captains. I took a stroll in the evening and retired early to bed, my mind filled with a profound astonishment that a city of 240,000 inhabitants should be so entirely free from any signs of dissipation. As a rule, the first impressions of a lonely traveler who finds himself in a strange town at night depend very much on cafés chantants and such-like places of frivolous amusement, which, perhaps, he does not visit once in a twelve-month when at home. And yet, I believe, there are some travelers who, having finished their dinner at the hotel, do not, like ordinary mortals, say to the waiter, What's going on here tonight? Which is the best music hall? But pass the evening reading up their guidebooks and reserve all their energies for the visiting of museums, picture galleries, churches, and other sites of an improving description. Unfortunately, I had not been educated up to this. Later on, when I saw more of Copenhagen, I somewhat modified my views, for has not this city, its Tivoli and its opera house, famous for its beautiful ballets? Still, the amusements of Tivoli are rather childish, and it cannot be denied that this capital seems very dull to the trivial tourist. But when one really knows Copenhagen, has friends in it, and mingles in its charmingly unaffected and bright society, it soon becomes to him one of the pleasantest of European cities. I saw something of this real and inner life, and hoped to see more of it, with the result that, if I were told that I must leave London and take up my residence in some other large town, I am not sure that I should not select the fair capital of Denmark. End of chapter 13